Hey, this is Burke. Due to the nature of this podcast, there might be depictions of graphic violence or harsh language, so listener discretion is advised. Much like the last episode, the same disclaimer. I'm going to try to record this over today, but I'm likely going to have to finish it tomorrow as well and the day it comes out. So the voice might sound different throughout the day. Believe it or not, even though these episodes are kind of short, I do take breaks throughout recording them and sometimes it takes a little bit to get my thoughts in order to talk about a subject. The bright side is everything seems a little bit more organic when I talk like this and for the most part I think it sounds better (laughs) than when I just read something off like the earlier episodes. With that all out of the way we're going to try to wrap up the villain or antagonist episode this episode. Eh, Maybe next episode. It's antagonist boss related so it sort of fits. It'll get wrapped up probably next episode. So I'll start with today's conversation with who is surrounding your villain or your antagonist. And we can look back to an old, way older episode where I used an organization chart to map out different organizations, different city builds, uh, kingdoms, what have you. I used an organization chart to chart all that out. So who is around your antagonist? Now I know this topic is mostly about the main antagonist, but you do need supporting characters around your antagonist that either follow their mission statement or line up with their goals in some so, some way. And a lot of times these characters are going to have more interaction with your party than the main antagonist themselves. For this example, I'm going to use Star Wars for instance. The group has way more interactions with Darth Vader than let's say the Emperor. Luke for the most part has zero interaction with the Emperor up until the last film. Now you see less of these in the films, but Vader also had underlings too. We can also look into like, I don't know, Lord of the Rings, a more fantasy setting. Well, a fantasy setting, but think of the organization chart just based around Sauron. Sauron didn't have the means to interact with the world all that much, so he had to use his forces to do so. And he had lieutenants, and they accomplished his goals. Another point I'm going to try to make with these is you do not want to throw away these characters when you can. Now, don't get me wrong. You are going to build a relationship between the antagonist and the party as much as you possibly can. You need to have that connection to keep them strongly on the mission than to take them out. But they also need to have a relationship with the lesser lieutenants on their way to taking out the big bad. And a lot of times these lieutenants, these seconds, thirds, fourths, or even fifths in some cases, these are not necessarily throwaway characters. They should be named people that have interactions with your group and ultimately come into conflict with your party. A good opportunity to take advantage of some of this is if you have players that have submitted significant backstories where there is an option to use one of their characters from their backstories, like a rival, a friend that strayed down the wrong path, maybe somebody that your party hasn't necessarily been able to save or save their family, for instance. Maybe they maybe the party failed and the necromancer has raised one of your party's friends as one of their lieutenants. Maybe he's given him free will and maybe the friend of the party has beef with them because of this. Maybe this friend of the party has beef that you weren't able to save their family. And so this is the way that they are trying to get revenge. And sometimes these kind of characters are just about the money. Maybe it's somebody they know that's been bought off. The great thing with some of these characters that we've kind of just discussed through here here, is their objectives 
don't necessarily have to line one-to-one with the main antagonist. They could just be doing it for the money, or this is the easiest way for them to get their revenge. While we're on the subject of kind of the surrounding influence around your main antagonist, let's talk about the relationship with the populace. Now, I understand if they're an invading army, your kingdom that they're being, let's say your kingdom is being invaded. Obviously, you're not going to welcome this person with open arms, but how does their kingdom treat them? Do they view them as a tyrant or are they happy about what is happening. They're happy with the conquest. They're happy with the economic uh, boon that is coming from the military industrial complex. Or is it the opposite? Maybe he's drafting every man, woman, and child into his army and they hate his guts, but they are too terrified to deal with him. This whole series, the kind of idea is I'm asking a bunch of questions that you may not have thought for yourself, but if you can answer these certain things, and they just seem like they're small questions, but really they paint a big picture and that's really the goal i'm looking for with this series because if you can answer these questions it'll help you build your villain or your antagonist and it'll be more realistic for your players and it'll be closer grounded in reality this way as well too because at the end of the day if your party can grasp who the antagonist really is as well as identify with that person in some way shape or form they're more than likely going to be engaged in your game more than, let's say, if it's something they can't understand why it's doing it. Now, let's talk about this villain's army, or let's talk about their, their forces, their resources that they're using. Now, are they using up everything to the last? Are they afraid of retreat? How do they utilize their forces for the most part? And answering these questions kind of figures out what mentality they have. Now, there's just some psychopath that's just gonna throw everything at them and they don't care how many people have to die for them to succeed, or do they feel every loss? And that brings their populace more on their side. And the last thing I'm really going to talk about with the antagonist itself. The last little question I'm going to ask you right now is how did they come to power? Were they elected? Did they seize power? Maybe they were knighted, took control that way, found forbidden knowledge, which gave them immense power, which allowed them to take over their country, their kingdom, maybe just a city. And that last one kind of touches on this other thing. How powerful are they? Now, are they just somebody who has pulled the strings up to this point and has no actual power to, for themselves, which is an actual option, by the way? Or do they hold real power? Are they a god? Are they something like a god? Or are they just some really powerful entity that is masquerading as something else? Okay, this episode would be super short if I just ended it like that. So I'm not going to do it like that. It's time to put everything in the last three episodes together. That's right. I'm actually going to build an antagonist right here. Now I'm tempted to build Skitter out and I might do that as the second one, but I'm going to build one on the spot because this is actually probably the best way for you and I to both get in the same mindset to building something because you're going to build this on the spot anyway. I have most of this information for Skitter already, even though I haven't quite built them all the way out. But you know, I got something different other than Skitter that I haven't built out. So I'll just build that out for my world instead. Okay, let's do that. Okay, time to build one on the spot. Let's see, I could either roll something or, well, you know what? I just finished painting a fallen celestial, more like an angel. Unfortunately, she had sustained lots of damage while I was um, taking her off the build plate, but I decided to still glue her together. She's got some imperfections, but she looks great now that she's been painted. I think let's build her as a main antagonist for this game. Well, this hypothetical game. I may use her in the future. How about that? Okay, what do we call her? Let's give out my notebook. 
And you might be going, Burke, this is a lot of work for something you're just going to throw away. Ah, uh, I'm not going to throw it away. Nothing goes to waste with this. You can build these characters all you want, but as long as you keep them in a notebook somewhere, you can use them later. Okay, let's call her Serfenia. It's not too hard to say, and it'll be easy for the party to remember. All right, let's get some dice out and figure out why she has fallen. I just wrote some different things on a table, and okay. So her lover has died. Let's say it's during a conflict. I actually heard a quote the other day that really fits this, and it's the difference between a hero and a villain is how they process their pain. This is something that is going to be identifiable to your party. But these, this is a person who is hurting, and the more they learn about this player or this entity, the more they should feel for this entity. And ideally, we want to make its mission statement identifiable to a lot of people so they can flock followers to their mission. Okay, what am I going to name her lover? Let's call her lover Isabella. Now that we've kind of figured out why they are going down this path, what is their main objective? Now, are we going to go the she wants to merge the divine as well as the supernatural into this world? Does she want to corrupt, let's say, the celestial realms? Is she bringing up some cataclysmic event? I don't think so. That doesn't really fit what we're going with this. When designing this, I don't see her going after the main populace other than to seek them as followers. Yeah, you guys are actually getting my kind of live <laughs> thought process with this. I think what you do with her is she is trying to get revenge on the celestial realms and maybe even the demonic realms. Let's say there, she wants to get revenge on both sides. And maybe she's seeking out parties who've been affected by the chaotic nature of just the universe itself. And she's looking for people who have lost people. Using a celestial being or an angel or celestial or some sort of entity that this character is. It's a high charisma based character and it wouldn't have a terribly hard time convincing its stance on the universe to basically anybody. And it might be able to manipulate the populace to the point where it could raise an army or even elevate an army, maybe granting these people supernatural strength through the knowledge they have gained. And maybe they've gone down a path of forbidden knowledge in seeking the power to stop both sides. That actually doesn't sound too bad. It allows the party to identify with the main antagonist and they might actually, you know, go, hey, you know, they're not wrong for feeling like this. However, the way they're going about it isn't necessarily the right way to do this. And them being a celestial being, they don't heal the same way as we do. And they can't move on with their pain. They just focus on their pain and try to create the world the way they want to or the multiverse the way they want to. So the party has to go, well, shit, we have to stop her because she's going to get the mortal realms caught in a conflict between both the celestial and demonic realms. Now, how does the populace perceive this character? Probably pretty well in some cases, and some people are probably terrified of them. I think probably a lot of the populace might worship her as a god or just proof that the gods exist. And also it depends on how she's spreading these messages. Is she manipulating the, the populace through their desires? Is she promising that, hey, if you go to war with these factions, we can bring your loved ones back, knowing there's a good chance that's not even possible. Or maybe she's convinced that there is, this is possible. She could easily do this by, you know, cultivating fear and instability, but it doesn't really work. 
this isn't really the character that we're building. Honestly, like she doesn't even have to go through pop propaganda or even manipulating people for the most part, just giving them the, the option to get that their desires is probably a big motivator for most people. And, the, and then the other half, maybe just the fact that you, you, she demonstrates her raw power. Maybe she's done some kind of miracles to try to save and heal people and get them closer to her side. And honestly, probably one of the biggest things she could probably do is offer redemption or even a purpose for some people. And honestly, I'm going to combine pretty much all of these except for the propaganda thing. A lot of this really lines up for itself. And honestly, she becomes a very compelling character and the party might actually inter not even indirectly, might actually directly interact with her. Maybe she tries to get them on her side and maybe then they realize how batshit insane she is because at the end of the day, they're not necessarily sure that she can accomplish this mission, especially when she makes a war on two sides and with mortal beings as the foot soldiers. The question comes down to how can she even have an organization chart with this? This is kind of crazy now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, honestly, I think the route I want to go with this is kind of culty because she kind of fits the mold of a cult leader. Oh God. You know, I had an idea for an episode where we were gonna talk about building a cult, but am I gonna build a cult right here? Or am I saving this for later? No, I have no experience building cults and I've never been a part of a cult. I'm just saying that in tabletop settings, I have built cults in the past, but, uh, oh God, I'm gonna have to build at least a partial one for this episode. Oh fuck. Anyways, like any organization, we have to have her at the top. It just fits for this. So let's say we have her at the top. Now, how many subordinates should she have? Depends on how big the army is. We're talking an army of millions because she's going to need millions of foot soldiers. There's probably hundreds of subordinates, but your party's not going to go and hunt down hundreds of people. So let's cut that number down. Actually, probably closer to thousands. But anyways, we're going to cut that number down. <laughs> let's cut it down to eight, maybe in this region. Now, these are beings that are only, say, um, communicating with her. She is the only one above them. Now, let's say these seconds probably have what? two or three a piece of subordinates of their own. Now, given this is going to be a game going up to level, let's say 20, because she is an angel and we're celestial being. So it's not hard to put her at like a CR 25, a CR 26, maybe even a CR 30. So realistically, the org charts kind of check out. You have your eight subordinates plus three, four subordinates of those. That makes a lot of sense. Now there's thousands others because if you're building an army that big, you have to have a shit ton of people running them. So the mouth kind of checks out and you're going to have lower subordinates below that, but they're kind of small fish. And then you got the armies themselves. See that checks out, especially if she has some form of military tactics, or maybe she's hired on or recruited people that have knowledge of military tactics and they maybe are constructing her army. Maybe she has some war master that's directly beneath her. And let's say those people I said who are only reporting to her or maybe reporting to a war master. That actually makes a lot of sense. I told you, you're seeing my process live with this. All right, we've now created an organization chart that involves 42 people. No, I'm not gonna build out the names of these 42 people, except for one we already know is Sophrenia. So this works. This is enough entities where maybe the party is taking out groups of these and it gives them a list of people to take out. And in a long-term game, this actually works out pretty well. The goal with a character like this is 
They are actually going to interact with your party directly, especially if they're trying to recruit them. This entity isn't evil. This entity is hurt. Their whole universe has been destroyed because they lost their loved one. And this entity doesn't have the emotional capacity to deal with their trauma and their hurt other than to destroy. And instead of taking it out on the human race or the world of the living, they're seeking the revenge on the parties who have caused the damage, the parties who have caused these endless millennia wars. And theoretically, your party could possibly talk this entity down especially when they're facing them in combat. Because, like I said earlier, the difference between a hero and a villain or an antagonist is how they process their pain. Because most of these players are going to have backstories that probably mirror this character. Okay, I said I was going to do two. And it's not going to be Skitter, even though I kind of have him mapped out. Let's build Xerath, my undead lich. For starters, why would somebody choose to become a lich? There's a lot of these reasons. I could do the whole, they want to bring back a loved one. Hey, we already just did that though. Maybe they're after immortality. Maybe it's kind of boring. Maybe they did it for the power. They just were power hungry in life and chose to continue that life to gain more power. Yeah, maybe that kind of fits. Maybe they were close to the dead when they were alive. Maybe they focused mainly on necromantic powers and research, and that's why they've chosen to stay undead. It kind of lines up with the, set, the other one, and it kind of works. I think we got. I think we're onto something with that. And maybe they found a unique way to gain new abilities that normal liches didn't come across. Okay, we're going to add the three of those together. Now, this world is in, well, in the process of freezing solid. Now, would uh, this lich care about the world? Maybe want to fix it? Possibly. Maybe that's why he's choosing to build his undead army to attack the the, the white dragon queen? Maybe. It's not a bad idea. See, what you're kind of seeing me with this building is I don't necessarily want him to just be a villain. I'd like him to be an antagonist. Gray is a great area when you're building these characters. Maybe he's choosing Lichdom, and maybe he's choosing to build his undead army this way because they are going to last longer than, let's say, the living. So maybe he's trying to use undeath as a way to buy him more time. See, maybe he's calculated in his head that the world will freeze solid and everybody will die on this world before they have an option to fix the world. It's a shitty way to look at it and it's very pessimistic, but the party might go, Ugh, I kind of see where he's coming, but he's still an asshole for doing it this way or trying to be this way. Well, it's pretty easy to figure out why people are flocking to him because he's bringing up their dead corpses. It's just the easy way to do it. He's building his followers by killing people and building up followers that way. And what do they think about him? I don't think they can think of anything because they're dead. Maybe he has undead, other undead that are in there who have the capacity of thinking and they could be lieutenants. Maybe focusing on vampirism so you have some vampire type entities as lieutenants or even ghouls. Ghouls have a higher intelligence than most undead and they do have the, the brain capacity to problem solve. And maybe he has tweaked and twisted some of his lieutenants into beings that can think for themselves. Maybe he has some skeleton soldiers or death knights or some other things that have a better capacity for thought. And to make this interesting, maybe he's 
rafted, let's say two, two other beings to his, his body and has granted them lichdom. So maybe he can process information differently when he has three perspectives, sharing a body. Maybe he controls the limbs and everything else, but maybe he's still getting their input because they're grafted onto his body. Also could allow for him to be a more powerful entity because he say, has the option of having a whole different skill set because maybe the other two are different. Maybe he has a cleric on one side. Maybe he has, I don't know, a bard on the other side. Maybe a druid on the other side. And let's say he's after the dragon queen because he wants her perspective to help accomplish this. Because maybe, oh, well, I already established this. She has a very high magic use. She's very connected to the weave of the world and she can cast magic. So maybe that's why he's after her and her forces. Well, this was a fun series. It's a lot of fun talking about the process of designing these antagonists. Trust me, they can be a lot of different people and the more deep you make them, the more interesting they are when your party plays against them especially when they interact with them, because really there isn't much of a difference between your players and your antagonists most of the time. Don't get me wrong, there's definitely the time and place to have this unknowable creature be your villain, but they're, for the most part, most of your antagonists are going to be relatable in some way, shape, or form. Something might be broken about them as a person. Maybe that's why they are the way that they are. Okay, outro stuff. I have an idea for a bonus episode and I think I'm going to build it and then this week. Cross my fingers with this. It will hopefully not be too terrible for me to do. It's going to be a character builder. I like this Safaria character a lot and I think I'm going to build her backstory out. I have no idea when the next episode of the Telor campaign is going to be. We have started discussing dates, but there's no telling. If you're looking for the socials, they're down below in the show description. Still haven't done anything with that Instagram yet. I'm asking a friend to help show me how to take better mini pictures. Maybe I need to look at backgrounds or how to take better photography on my phone. I've never been great with it, so I need to look up some videos. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, if you could tell a friend about it, that would be awesome. And thank you so much for making it to the end of the episode, and I will catch you on the next one.